Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. One of my favorite episodes of This American Life is an episode where they kind of document people's wrong ideas they have floating around in their heads. And one woman who seems to be well into her 20s has only recently discovered that unicorns are not real. Uh, And much to her embarrassment, this kind of happened in a public social setting. The thing is, as she points out, I mean, dinosaurs were real, you know? Dinosaurs, I mean, a Tyrannosaurus rex or a pterodon or something, that's so much more far-fetched than a horse with a horn. Lots of animals have horns. Lots of animals are horses. A unicorn seems like she's got a point, which should be able to exist somewhere within that taxonomy and morphology. We're going to talk about unicorns today, whether they're real or not. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. I've had that song stuck in my head all day. Why shouldn't you? Um, and it's not exactly about unicorns, which is what the show is about. But it's about something very close to unicorns, something we may wind up touching upon. So, you know, when it, word got around that we were doing a show about unicorns, produced by celebrity producer Lily Tyson, a lot of people chimed in with stuff over on Facebook. I got a picture that somebody took of a car on the Tappan Zee Bridge in 2015, and there's a... It looks like there's a unicorn kind of hanging his head out of the window of the car. 
the way a dog would. But it looks pretty real, realistic, if that's the right word. Um, but the thing that I liked the most of everything that everybody sent me, I think this he was sending it to a guy named Alan. I think it was a sort of mainly a funny story, but I found it very touching. He said, when my wife was pregnant, we went to King's Dominion Amusement Park. I won a huge stuffed unicorn. Since she couldn't ride the rides, she had the job of watching the unicorn all day. I told her it was good practice for being a parent. We kept the unicorn in my daughter's bedroom where it scared away monsters. And that's, you know, there's a couple of very true things in there. But there's a, there's a way in which unicorns are around. They're in our minds and in our hearts, maybe because we need them. But there are people on the show today who know way more about this than I do. Uh, they are Sarah Laskow, a senior editor for Science at The Atlantic and the author of The Very Short, Entirely True History of Unicorns. Uh, Adam Gidwitz uh, is the author of the Unicorn Rescue Society series, among other books, and the creator of the podcast Grim, Grimmer and Grimmest. That's grim as in brothers. Uh, and Martha Bayless is a director of folklore and public culture and a professor of English at the University of Oregon. So, um, Sarah Laskow, I'm going to begin with you. Um, unicorns isn't, aren't something that some animator thought up in the 1980s or even a fantasy writer like Peter Beagle in the 1960s. Unicorns, the idea of a unicorn has been around way back into antiquity. Just give us a sense of that. Yeah, I mean, the idea itself goes way, way back. I mean, you find it, the idea of one-horned creatures in mythology all over the world. Um, of course, there's like real creatures out like in different parts of the world that do have one horn. But in the written record, we start to hear about unicorns, uh, mostly in like Greek and Roman times as people started to travel more through these empires and hear stories about um, these types of creatures. And they wrote them down as if they were real. And it kind of makes sense. Like when you look at these texts, um, these writers are talking about all sorts of animals and some of them did turn out to be real. You know, like this is the, some of the first uh, descriptions in the Western world of like elephants. Um, and so people wrote about these four-legged, one-horned creatures as just another kind of fantastic... Um, that sound, every time a unicorn poops, you're going to hear that sound, that little ding. That you <laughs> so, anyway, uh, continue. Go ahead, Sarah. Yeah, so that was sort of the beginning of yeah. it. And so, you know, a lot of this is sort of mistaken identity. You've got these Greco-Roman writers who probably are talking to somebody who talked to somebody who was in India and saw a rhinoceros. But by the time that it gets right. back to us, Martha, you know, it, it's different. And, and I think one of the things that, that happens pretty naturally is the project. It's like a rhinoceros is interesting, but just in terms of kind of an ennobling or inspiring story, there's something about making it a horse that's, uh, that's important. Uh, Martha, maybe you could sort of give us kind of an ethnological sense of why that would be. <laughs> Well, of course, there weren't always uh, variations of horses in the beginning. They were sometimes hybrid animals, and they'd be like part goat, so they have beards, which is kind of interesting, and they have the tail of a lion, which is cool, you know. And in the Middle Ages, you'd also get sort of proof of unicorns. You'd get horns mm -hmm. that were imported, and they were actually from narwhals, you know, which is a kind of whale that has a, a sort of thing that looks like a horn, a sort of lovely twisty horn. And so you'd get those 
you know, brought back by, by voyagers and they'd say, look, here's a unicorn horn. And so why wouldn't you believe that, you know? And also the horn was so strange that they thought, well, it must be magical because things that are very exotic and curious are magical. And so you would use the unicorn horn to purify things or to counteract poison or something. So it's not just a strange, exotic sort of cryptozoological animal. It's a, it's a magical animal. And who doesn't want to know more about magical animals? Right. And, but Adam, I also feel like it's important that it becomes a horse. I don't know. I'm in the middle of uh, Empire of the Summer Moon, which is about the Comanche nation. And they were transformed from being kind of a lower echelon, picked on and kicked around tribe to the most feared uh, Native American tribe in America s- simply because they they got a hold of Arabian horses from the Spanish and then just dis- it transformed them. And there's a way in which the horse, more than a lot of animals, makes us different, right? We get excited about horses because the horse can really, you know, put us in a different position. So true. Horses are really empowering. Um, and, you know, if uh, dogs are, quote, a man's best friend, um, a horse is in some way a man's best ally um, in terms of uh, power, competency, ability to travel, ability to see farther, ability to be powerful. Um, and so if you take that sort of allyship of the horse and combine it with the exotic and ma- the magical, um, as Martha just described, uh, you have something very special indeed. So, um, so yeah, then there is this kind of um, I, I mean, Sarah, I guess if if Jung were around to ask about this, I mean, he'd say it probably makes sense that this is coming from more than one geographic source in antiquity, that it's coming from China. It's coming. I mean, people may know that recently North Korea announced that it had found some skeletons, not of a unicorn, but I think it's called a Kirin, something in their own culture that's kind of similar to that. But there's sort of a sense where, you know, I mean, ar- archetypes exist maybe within humanity as opposed to any particular geography. There's there's a, there's a way in which, I don't know, it just kind of works everywhere. Oh, yeah. And I think, like, you know, there are, like, these types of stories, but also, like, you know, evidence in different ways, like, all over the world that would, like, give these people ideas. Like, you do see these creatures that have one horn in different places. And, um, you know, it's you bring up the skeleton, but, like, that's, like, stuff that people have um, come across, like, time and time again in different ways. I think there was, like, a skeleton of a unicorn, quote unquote, found in Germany in like the 1800s. And also there was like a legitimate, um, you know, prehistoric one horned creature um, that there have been like fossils found of in uh, Central Asia. Right. So, um, you know, I think notwithstanding that, and yeah, there's a place in the Hartz Mountains in Germany called the Unicorn Cave. Actually, what's there is our our bones of all kinds of prehistoric animals uh, that are not that are not. There, everything but a unicorn is in there. All kinds of animals that don't exist anymore. But that was where people's thoughts go. You know, wow, here's some stuff I don't recognize. It must be a unicorn. But I think Adam, there's also this sense in which the way in which the unicorn is withheld from us. You know, we can't really see a unicorn. Children can't really see a unicorn. And and so that puts it kind of on the other side of some kind of veil, right? There's a way in which we still have something to yearn for and dream about because you never see the unicorn, including, I might add, uh, in the Unicorn Rescue Society series, they find all kinds of things. Have they found a unicorn yet? 
Yeah, no, they, they haven't. You're absolutely right. So um, just as background, the series is a series for children, sort of second grade through fourth grade. And it's about finding mythical creatures. Each book, they go to a different place. They learn about the culture and they use what they learn about the mythology to rescue a mythical creature. But the one creature that the Unicorn Rescue Society has never found is a unicorn. And I think that there's something really essential about that, as, as you said. Children in particular maintain an incredible sense of wonder. I have a five-year-old daughter and there is so much in the world that she does not understand, so much just beyond the horizon that she can't wait to discover. Um, and the unicorn has become like the dragon, but actually more so than the dragon. And I know you did a recent wonderful show about dragons, so everyone should go listen to the podcast of that. There's a plug for your show. Um, but the, the unicorn remains just over the horizon for all of us as the thing we are searching for that we can't find for children and also for adults. Um, and so I think it's, uh, it's, it's special and it's magical in that way that we'll keep it a, a living legend, even as adults say, oh, no, it doesn't really exist. Yeah, but we still love it. So, Martha, if people want to see unicorns, uh, one place they can go is to the cloisters in one of the northern or northwesternmost uh, reaches of Manhattan, and, and they'll see tapestries. If you're in Paris, you can go to the Musée de Cluny, uh, where there's uh, also tapestries, uh, a tapestry called The Lady and the Unicorn. So somewhere around the Middle Ages, or somewhere around peak tapestry, uh, the unicorn starts to to be a very specific thing. Can, can you kind of unpack that a little bit? What's going on with these unicorns on these tapestries? I love the expression peak tapestry. Yes. <laughs> that's, that's just what it was. I mean, especially high status, rich people wanted a unicorn on their wall because, um, because they are elusive. And that's the only way you're going to see one is if you have a, a big picture of one that someone has created. And the tapestries are um, a little mysterious, especially the ones in the Met about exactly what they're meant to represent. It's a unicorn hunt. Um, so it, it is that uh, quest for a unicorn that Adam was talking about, um, except they, they actually get one in that one. Um, so maybe the Unicorn Rescue Society should consult the, the people. <laughs> we'll liberate it. <laughs> yeah. um, but so maybe, you know, being the one that possesses the unicorn is a very high status thing and you want that on your wall. Um, but it's still a very elusive creature. It's not uh, easy. It's kind of a hidden creature, you know, like fairies were the hidden people. And unicorns are sort of the animal version of the hidden people, the, the un elusive one that you can never find. And so I think there was that sense that it was very special and magical. And even I think in the modern day, we, we carry on that to some extent, because even though they're like horses, you don't ever see people riding them. And in the many medieval pictures, people are never riding them. They're not ridden like horses. They're, they're something that will maybe come to you, especially you know if you're a virgin, a, a unicorn will come and lay its head in your lap. But, um, but at the most, they're your friend. They're kind of an equal. They're never like an animal that's an inferior thing. And so you would want that on your wall. You know, they're beautiful, they're mysterious, they're elusive. It's high status to, to have one. The people are always very high status in the tapestries that are going after the unicorns. So 
there's sort of all of that combines to be a, a subject that was fascinating to the people making tapestries. So, Martha, also, oh, first of all, I want to say, as you were speaking, I was flashing back to a story from decades ago. A friend of mine named Ann Batterson was uh, traveling in the west of Ireland in the country, and she was staying in a guest house, and the... Uh, she could see that the windows and fireplaces were all boarded up uh, because probably because of the little people. And she's asked her hostess, do you believe in the little people? And her hostess said, no, but they're here. Uh, and there's, <laughs> there's a sort of way in which, you know, unicorns, we don't believe in them, but they, they are kind of here. But Martha, there's also kind of a way in which Christianity in particular, Judeo-Christianity uh, maybe, is this very what we sometimes call syncretistic uh, kind of religion. It absorbs things around it. Uh, so maybe you could just sort of say a little bit about, I mean, you know, unicorns in some ways belong to the world, world of cryptozoology, but they have a way of kind of creeping into religion maybe not canonically. We should say there are references in the King James Bible to unicorns. That's a translation problem. I think most people acknowledge that now. It wasn't really unicorns. But but maybe you could say, Martha, a little bit about unicorns and semi-established or established religion. Well, Christianity saw uh, symbols of, or I should say reflections of Christian truths in the natural world, and especially in the sort of wondrous natural world, because Christianity was considered just a one aspect of the wondrous natural world, maybe the most important aspect, but you know, it all was one continuous seamless whole. And so when they heard that unicorns are very special, pure, magical, you know, poison repelling animals that come to a virgin, they immediately thought of Christ. And so the unicorn was considered a symbol of Christ. Um, you know, who comes to the Virgin Mary and, and otherwise is, um, you know, not something that can be tamed, but something that's very supernatural and special. So they would value unicorns more for that. So if you had a unicorn in your tapestry on your wall, you could say, ah, this is the magical creature. I really love it. Or, you know, if the priest came by, you could say, see, I have a symbol of Christ on my wall and I'm, I'm thinking religious thoughts all the time. You know, you can, it's like those pictures where you can see either a vase or some people's faces, you can look at the unicorn in those two ways, the religious way or the sort of magical animal way. All right, we're going to pause here. We're going to take a little break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk very specifically about children and what uh, unicorns mean to them. When I was growing up, my best friend was a unicorn. The others smiled at me called me crazy but I was not upset by knowing I did not conform I always thought their scene must be about unicorns and children uh, and to set that up we have children available to us here we, we don't have to rent them um, so uh, Katie Tularski uh, our big boss uh, interviewed her kids uh, Hadel who's five and Henry who's three about unicorns my name's Hadel Henry so today we're going to talk about unicorns what do you guys know about unicorns I know they have a tail and they have they have unicorn hair 
and they have sparkly hair with a rainbow. And when they when they gallop, their hair um blows in the sun. Unicorn is powerful. What do unicorns have on their head? Um, they have a horn. A horn. Henry, what color are unicorns? Um, black. Do unicorns have wings or no? No, no. Where do they live? They live in a field. They live in a field. I know where they live in. They live in a farm. Do unicorns poop? No, ew. What do unicorns do all day? I know. They gallop and they ride on people. They ride on people. So tell me, like, how, like they wake up in the morning. Do they have breakfast? No. What do they do then? They just go and gallop in the field? They gallop around fields with um in the forest and in winter, <laughs> so they so people can ride on stuff. Um, people if. If they don't have a, if they don't have a car, they gallop on horses. Or if they don't have an airplane. How, wait, how many unicorns do you think there are in the whole world? I think there's ten. Do narwhals and princesses know each other and unicorns? Yes, they do. <laughs> So there you have it. Uh, first of all, I think we're done. You know, uh, let's uh, just go straight to here and now from here. Um, right at the end, narwhals, princesses, and unicorns. They network. Um, all right. So those are kids, uh, adorable kids, talking adorably uh, about uh, unicorns. And Adam, I'm guessing at this point it might be hard for me to come up with a piece of tape where kids talk about unicorns in a way that you haven't heard before. But maybe you could talk a little bit about you know, what is it with this particular creature and kids? I mean, we've already alluded to some of the, the appeal. Is, uh, just say a little bit more about that, though. Well, I think there's two sides of it. And first, I just have to say that was unbelievable. And I cannot possibly follow kids like that. And <laughs> literally every time children talk, there is something new that comes out of it, that they gallop on people, that they live in fields, <laughs> and that they all network with narwhals and princesses. Is I mean, I've never heard that, for sure. Um, as for why kids like unicorns so much, I mean, I do think it's important to mention that there is an enormous amount of merchandising of unicorns to children, right? They are uh, fed unicorns very early uh, by every company under the sun. Um, and I think that there is sort of a feedback loop there. Kids get excited about them. There's more merchandise, uh, kids get more excited, and so on and so forth. Now, some things merchandising doesn't work, uh, but unicorns always does. And there are probably many more reasons than we've already said for that. But I do think it's important to know that just like, you know, you get backpacks, you could have backpacks for days, you could wear a different unicorn backpack every day for the rest of your life, I'm pretty sure. All right. So, yeah. So, Kat, let's get B2 ready. I should say, by the way, that the subject brought up by Henry and or Hadel uh, about unicorn poop will be dealt with in the third and final segment of today's show. I think I'm going to assign it to Sarah because she's got some stuff in her book about u- unicorn poop. Uh, but um, in terms of what Adam's saying, let's hear a little bit uh, what that sounds like with My Little Pony, Friendship is Magic. Once upon a time, in the magical land of Equestria, there were two regal sisters who ruled together and created harmony for all the land. To do this, 
The eldest used her unicorn powers to raise the sun at dawn. The younger brought out the moon to begin the night. Thus, the two sisters maintain balance for their kingdom and their subjects, all the different types of ponies. But as time went on, the younger sister became resentful. The ponies relished and played in the day her elder sister brought forth, but shunned and slept through her beautiful night. One fateful day, the younger unicorn refused to lower the moon to make way for the dawn. The elder sister tried to reason with her, but the bitterness in the young one's heart had transformed her into a wicked mare of darkness, Nightmare Moon. She vowed that she would shroud the land in eternal night. Reluctantly, the elder sister harnessed the most powerful magic known to Ponydom, the Elements of Harmony. Using the magic of the Elements of Harmony, she defeated her younger sister and banished her permanently in the moon. All right, all right. I think I've heard enough. They're actually, I don't know. Some are, some are, that sounds really boring. <laughs> I think they've taken unicorns and some are made it into kind of a boring thing. But Sarah, one thing we know is I don't know, some, sometime, uh, like I grew up essentially without unicorns. I'm really old. Mm. You know, I'm a baby boomer. I don't even have you. I mean, we, we would know what that word meant, but it wasn't sort of anywhere part of our, you know, our background noise or anything like that. Uh, Sarah, I think sometime around the 80s, there was just this, talk about peak tapestry. There was peak uni- unicorn all of a sudden. Oh, yeah. And I am, a, you know, elder millennial born in the 80s. So I 100% grew up with unicorns, like fully immersed in like a giant collection of My Little Ponies, like full on Lisa Frank, Trapper Keeper, like aesthetic. And I think like it's it's hard to say exactly why this happened, but like that's definitely the timing of it. I think like in the 70s, you started to see unicorns show up a little bit more you started to see like rainbows, which are closely associated with unicorns show up a little bit more. But then like just the pure commercial power of the 80s really locked it in. Um, not just like with Lisa Frank and My Little Ponies, which were like invented in the 80s and like latched onto unicorns really quickly. Um, you had like the last unicorn animated movie. You had Shira, also a big uh, figure in my childhood who uh, rode a unicorn. So like um, you had Legend, which also another movie, which like prominently featured unicorns. So I think like there was just this like uh, growing cultural force that like cemented unicorns in our minds as like an important part of childhood. And I think part of what you see now is just like, you know, people who, who like grew up in that era now like passing that on to their own kids. Like we just know that unicorns are like obviously a part of childhood. Yeah. So, yeah, it was 80s, you know, trickle down economics, Ronald Reagan, a lot of unicorns there, too, actually. So. um, So. um, So, Martha, I have to ask sort of a Bruno Bruno Bettelheim question here, which is, you know, there's so Bettelheim has this, you know, famous argument, uses of enchantment where he says, you know, Disney changed all of these old fairy tales. They were much scarier and they were very cautionary. Don't take stra- candy from strangers. Don't go into gingerbread houses in the woods. Don't don't eat apples that are handed to you by people you don't know very well. Um, you know, life is scary. Your mother might die and your mother, m- father might marry somebody really horrible. Um, and I'm sort of wondering whether even like somebody from peak tapestry Middle Ages or any other point on the unicorn continuum would necessarily Recognize or accept the current 
I would say maybe a slightly more anodyne version of unicorns. Yeah, well, I, I have to disagree with Bettelheim first. I, I feel a professional responsibility okay. to, to completely overthrow him. Um, he assumed that tales like that were for children. And folklorists know that for thousands of years, those tales have been for everyone, for adults as well as children. So they can't be aimed at, you know, making children learn certain lessons I mean, it's kind of an American thing that everything has to have a moral to the end, you know, mm -hmm. and all children's books have to teach you to be a better person and stuff like that. Um, we also like stories just because they're weird and dangerous. It would be a weird fairy tale if two kids went out in the middle of the woods and, you know, they saw some nice birds and then they went home, right? It's got to have danger and thrill in it. And it's got to have the elusive and magic. And unicorns are elusive and magic. I think that part's definitely still carries over. There wasn't anything really threatening about unicorns ever. And um, one odd thing about unicorns in mythology, unlike a lot of things like dragons, is there aren't a lot of stories like narratives in which unicorns do things. I mean, occasionally they, they purify a stream or something, but they don't really have whole sagas about what unicorns do. They mainly are just pictured as if you just glimpse them from afar and you don't incorporate them into a larger story. So a, a modern difference is that now they're in stories, but I, I don't think um, unicorns were threatening or dangerous in the middle ages. They were also magical and elusive and, and fun to think about. So in that way, I think it's a great continuity between uh, then and now. The one thing that they weren't was cute. Um, so the cuteness is a modern thing, you know, which started in the 80s and now we've definitely reached peak cuteness. But, uh, you know, the, the other qualities of unicorns, I think, are intact the whole way through. Yeah, maybe not so much the rainbows. Although, I don't know, some of these Greco-Roman historians talk about a tricolored animal, so maybe that. But so, Adam, in a way, you, you know, it seems to me you're carrying a lot on the somewhat older tradition in the sense that, I mean, another thing that you could say about unicorns in in antiquity or in in the kinds of legends that Martha is is citing now is they're not in our faces all the time. They're like, yeah, she she said, you know, you want to glimpse them. There's something that maybe you are questing toward, uh, but they're not. You're just not like you know, sticking their yeah. their noses in our in our faces all the time. <laughs> Definitely. I also, I mean, I'd love to go back to the Bettelheim thing and connect it to uh, unicorns. So, um, you know, my my actual particular specialty is fairy tales and Grim Grimmer Grimmest, which you talked about a podcast. I tell fairy tales live to kids and you get the kind of reactions that we just heard recorded, which is why talking to kids is just the best. And um, I would disagree with with the way that Bettelheim was, you characterized Bettelheim, if I may. Okay, I think do. Bettelheim really argues that the fairy tales, and, and Martha's absolutely right, those fairy tales were not explicitly or only for children, they were for everybody. But that the reason the fairy tales did exist and were repeated in multiple forms for thousands of years is because Bettelheim argues, and I agree, they speak to our deepest desires and our deepest fears. It's mm -hmm. not just cautionary. Mm -hmm. It's not just don't eat the poisoned apple. It's that your mother is jealous of you, but in fact, you're jealous of your mother. And those emotions, the reason that Snow White is so immortal and so powerful to children is because um, it is it encodes these really intense emotions that children and adults have about each other. It's why we want to hear Snow White 
over and over again for hundreds of years. Similarly, unicorns, I think, also encode things for us. So um, you were all talking about the, the cloisters, uh, the Met cloisters, um, tapestries. So one of the reasons I'm uh, really into unicorns is that my wife is a lecturer at the cloisters. She's also medievalist like Martha. Um, and the third element, so Martha was talking about how it's a very interesting tapestry with hidden meanings. And the third meeting that, that Martha didn't yet get to, and, and maybe trying to be okay, you know, like polite for public radio is a sexual one. Mm-hmm. That the unicorn is a phallic symbol, right? With this horn. And it's a, the, the tapestries were a wedding present. And so there's this sort of joke in there about capturing the woman, capturing the man. And then the, it's penned up, you know, just as sometimes they call the wedding ring, the world's smallest handcuff. The, the unicorn gets penned up and it's surrounded by pomegranates and other symbols of fertility. So I think for kids, the unicorn, I mean, the fact that for that th- three-year-old boy, that there is a large phallic symbol on top of the horn, on top of the head, that the unicorn is very powerful and can be a powerful ally, that it speaks to deeper levels, the way that fairy tales do, than just rainbows, than just cuteness. Um, at least that's how I interpret it. I think that's why it's one of the things that makes it so powerful to seek them. Well, Adam, I think another thing that it speaks to, too, is, I mean, historically, kind of a huge sorting out of what was real and what wasn't. As the world became more discoverable, you could know. But there were, I think you mentioned to our producer, Lily Tyson, you know, there was a period of time where people weren't sure where the gorillas were a, a real thing, uh, you know. And, and there was there was this marvelous thing on This American Life. Uh, they did a show about sort of wrong ideas people have in their heads. And this woman told the story about being in her 20s and not being aware of the fact that unicorns weren't real. Uh, and <laughs> one thing she said was, you know, y- people talk about dinosaurs like they're a given. And these are monsters like a Tyrannosaurus rex or a pterodactyl or, you know, these are just a, almost impossible to imagine creatures. Whereas a unicorn's a horse with a horn on it. You know, it just seems like it probably has a better chance of being real than a dinosaur. Yes. So she was really kind of surprised. I mean, maybe you can sort of comment on that idea of the kind of, you know, sort the big sorting out of what's real and what's not. Yeah, I think that's so important. So when I was doing the Unicorn Rescue Society series, one of the things that I did was I co-wrote the books with authors from the culture that the Unicorn Rescue Society visited. So I wasn't just doing superficial research and then writing the book. Um, I was working with authors who knew the mythology inside and out, who had grown up with it. Um, And one of the authors that I worked with is an incredible Native American author of the Abenaki tribe named Joseph Bruchak. He's an incredible storyteller. And he told me the story about uh, the gorillas, how 150 years ago, many Western scientists thought they were a myth. And then they found them and they're like, oh, sorry, you weren't kidding. They, they really, they're real. Um, I think that, um, you know, each, of, each culture has these creatures that are important to it, that are central to the culture, that we care about deeply. And mm-hmm. so, you know... <laughs> We say dinosaurs, I mean, we say dragons aren't real, right? And yet we have these skeletons of dinosaurs. What's the difference between a dragon and a dinosaur? Dragons are absolutely real. They were dinosaurs. Um, and so unicorns, they are real in so many ways. I mean, we think about the white rhinoceros, right? The white rhinoceros is a one-horned, or white rhinoceros is two-horned, but the Indian rhinoceros is a one-horned animal like a horse. Well, the white rhinoceros, two horns in Africa, 
There are only two white rhinoceroses left living in the world, and they are both in captivity. They will soon be dead. Um, we have hunted the white rhinoceros to extinction um, because we wanted the power of its horn, just the way in the Middle Ages, um, the people wanted the power of the unicorn's horn in the, in the shape of the narwhal's tooth. We pursued this myth to extinction. We killed it. And I think that there's a really powerful and important uh, lesson there about what we should allow to remain mythical, what we should pursue, and what we should um, uh, try to control uh, economically the way that humans so often do. So I would not tell a child a unicorn doesn't exist. I think a unicorn exists inside their hearts and in their mythology and in their subconscious in a way that's much more important um, and the way that the white rhinoceros no longer does because of what adults do when they get a hold of something. So we're going to talk more about horns and more about poop in the final segment. But before we go there, Sarah, I'm just also wondering, you know, I mean, we could talk about what, you know, what the meanings, what three possible layers of meaning might be for a unicorn in a tapestry in the cloisters. I don't know. Can you put your finger on a specific kind of meaning that the unicorn has today? I mean, we've been sort of dancing around with just some of the things that it means to children. I, I don't know. What is a unicorn in 2021? Does it have a specific function? I think that it retains that sense of like something that goes beyond your daily experience. I mean, I think we're going to, like you said, we're going to talk about like poop and horns and stuff, but like you also see people like using unicorn like colors or colors associated with unicorns to like bedazzle their food and drinks and things like that. And I think it's like, we're just reaching for something that feels like it's beyond our daily experience, something that like heightens our idea of what's possible in the world and like sparks our imagination a little bit. And that's as valuable today as it might've been in the middle ages or Greek and Roman times or in prehistorical times. Yeah. I mean, one of the nice things, and, and several people have already said this, I think about unicorns is like, I don't know, except for maybe in The Simpsons, you know, they don't really ever, like, turn on you. I, I think there might be a Simpsons thing where the unicorn has, suddenly has fangs or something. But basically, they're really, they're really, they're either really shy and elusive or they're really nice. Uh, and and so, and they're associated with, with rainbows, which are, you know, beautiful and appealing and stuff like that. And they're kind of like a, you know, free parking space for our soul. They're, they, you can just sort of go there chances are you're not going to get bitten or gored or anything like that. That's increasingly important in life, I think. Uh, all right. So I promised you poop. I promised you horns. I'm going to deliver on those promises. Uh, but after this break.
So I want to say thank you to Kat Pastor, who's the technical producer of this show and uh, the person who's making everything hum here the way it's supposed to. And Lily Tyson, celebrity producer to Lily Tyson. This whole idea was her idea, and she is the person who has executed it so beautifully. So thanks very much to both of them. And to you out there, a lot of people wrote in. I, this one woman sent in this wonderful story to me. It was a decades-old story about her, one of her children, who was being evaluated in this kind of psychoeducational uh, assessment. Uh, and uh, whoever was doing the uh, assessment had this wonderful description uh, of the little boy. Uh, I'm going to change his name uh, for his privacy to Owen. Owen is creative and can think outside the box. And then the uh, evaluator cites that old uh, adage, if you hear hoofbeats, think horses, not zebras. Uh, And then she writes, at times, Owen is thinking of zebras and maybe even unicorns. Um, And uh, so there you go. But we're all thinking of unicorns to a certain degree. We all, you know, I mean, people go into a cave in in Germany and see strange bones, and so they they go to unicorns right away. All right, our guests right now are Sarah Laskow, a senior editor for Science and the the Atlantic and the author of the very short, entirely true history of unicorns. Adam Gidwitz is the author of the Unicorn Rescue Society series, among other books, and the creator of the podcast Grim, Grimmer and Grimmest. Martha Bayless is the director of folklore and public culture and a professor of English at the University of Oregon. All right, Sarah, you're up. Uh, unicorns are associated, obviously, with rainbows. Oh, I don't know, obviously. For some reason or other, unicorns and rainbows uh, uh, got, uh, got stapled together. Uh, and I guess that means that unicorn poop is rainbow-colored. True? False? Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think we learned already on the show today that there is not consensus on whether unicorns actually do poop. But I think that if we assent to the idea that they do in fact defecate, there is consensus across the internet that that poop is rainbow colored. And also that if you really want to, you can make it in cookie form uh, or other delicious treats, um, usually by like dyeing it rainbow colors and making like swirly shapes. Yeah, you can do unicorn poop or something, you got unicorn lattes and all kinds of stuff. And there's some stuff in Sarah's book about how to do that. But you can also just go on Amazon. I think if you type in unicorn poop, you're going to get all kinds of multicolored candies that they would be happy to sell you. Uh, and, and I have to recommend, it's up on my Facebook page, there's a, a commercial for some kind of squatty potty kind of toilet. But uh, the, the theme of the thing is that there's this guy who is dressed like a prince in a fairy tale and next to him is a unicorn which is pooping out multi uh, multicolored soft serve rainbow colored soft serve ice cream and a little swirling poops of it and at one point as he's just sort of very you know in a very debonair way narrating the whole thing he just takes one of the cones and starts eating it and there's this little gasp you do because <laughs> oh my, he's eating poop from that unicorn we just saw the poop come out of the unicorn how can he possibly eat it all right so um that might be enough poop for now uh uh, but we need to talk about horns. So, so Martha, we got to come back now to something you mentioned in the very first segment, and that is the narwhal. Uh, you know, there's some way in which the narwhal, which is a real thing, is also somehow or other a sea unicorn. There's a baseball team here in Connecticut called the Norwich Sea Unicorn. So, so tell us a little bit. Of, how does the narwhal fit into all this? I'm sorry to bring the conversation back to poop, but I just have to say <laughs> that I, I I did write a book on medieval poop, which makes what? a great present, I should just point out, um, and that poop is a defining factor of things. So, like, does it smell bad is, is the 
is like the litmus test of the Middle Ages. Yeah. Um, like saints, how do they smell? You know, if they smell fragrant, that's that means they're holy. So it's not weird to be saying, well, what about unicorns? There's something that could be wrong about unicorns. Like the different ends of them, you know, the front end is always lovely and beautiful and has a horn on it. But the back end, you know, we, we have to account for the back end. So I just <laughs> wanted to say it's not so weird to be assessing, well, what about the poop question? You know, obviously when you get a child, the first question you ask them is, do unicorns poop? Because children would know. But um, so the horns obviously are going to be the most holy part because they're sort of the the top part. They look noble, they're lovely. And the fact that you had real evidence, evidence in quotation marks, of unicorns in the Middle Ages um, through the narwhal horns is, you know, was just a, a a source of thrill to people. And also if you had a unicorn, you wanted, you know, the most magical part of it that you could use and there you had it, you know? So I think there was also a thriving trade in people saying, oh, I have some unicorn here, extra, you know, special low price only today, you know? So there's, there's also the commodification element coming in there, but then there's the proof element that people loved, you know? So of course you would flock to evidence that there might be unicorns. Right. So, and, and narwhals are so kind of conveniently unicorny, at least, you know, in terms of that big, long, long spiky horn anyway. Um, I mean, that, that's true, but I should say that they didn't know that those horns came from narwhals. I mean, presumably the people who took the horns off the narwhals knew, yeah. but they didn't say to people, uh, here's a sea unicorn. They just said, I happen to have a unicorn horn here. And, you know, the people aren't going to say, I bet that came from a whale. You know, they're going to believe you. It sounds more likely that it came from a unicorn. Right. I just want to say, Martha, I don't think you really know this about this show, but the idea that you wrote a book about medieval poop and we didn't have you on as a guest is like, it's like Marlon Perkins saying, really, there are lions? I should definitely have some lions on my show then. I mean, like, it was just, it was just such a natural thing for us to do. All right. So, I mean, I'm, I'm disappointed in myself that, that we haven't covered this with you. But we will, believe me. You'll be back on to talk about this. So, Adam, you know, there's sort of a way in which, you know, particularly when you get to the horns of things, you know, they immediately start to sort of kind of branch out into different purposes. Um, absolutely anything with a horn can be ground up and uh, sold uh, as an aphrodisiac. In, in Asian markets. But I mean, I think the other two big things about a unicorn horn uh, that you point out would probably be a weapon or its opposite, some kind of healing thing. Yeah, that's right. Um, and so that certainly is what makes it um, powerful. Many of the medieval tropes about it and, and then modern stories are about its healing power, whether it purifies a pool or whether it's ground up and used as some sort of uh, medicine. Um, I think, you know, the other thing that makes it really valuable, right? So the, those attributes make the unicorn horn very valuable and it's also it's rare. Mm. But I think another thing that makes it really valuable is the kind of story that it is. Like we've been talking about two different kinds of stories this hour. One, like fairy tales. No one pretends that those are literally true. But when you're selling unicorn horn, you are selling a story that you are claiming is true, whether you know it's false or not, you know, whether you were sold it under false pretenses or whether you are selling it under false pretenses, you're selling a story. And I think that there is something very powerful and very lucrative about selling somebody a story that first of all, you say is true. And second of all, you say you can be a part of. 
I think that um, if you don't mind me veering briefly into politics, mm. one of the reasons that QAnon has been so powerful is not only are they peddling lies that they call truth, but that the QAnon believers participate in the story by trying to find new clues and figure out when the next Q drop is going to be. And so if you're in the area of stories that we are pretending are true, if you then involve the listener in the finding of that truth, the way that Sasquatch hunters do, which is the most disrespectful thing possible to try to go find Sasquatch, then you are creating a whole new level of fervor and demand. In fact, Joseph Bruchak, the Native American author who I worked with, his son is a tracker and was invited to go on, on one of those Sasquatch hunting shows. And he said, I never would because it would be so disrespectful to Sasquatch. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there's a way in which also I think Arcana, the idea that certain things have been kind of hidden, they're not. I mean, Dan Brown kind of has made a fortune off this idea that the non-canonical versions of things that have been hidden from people, you know, are incredibly kind of attractive for that reason. So the fact that yes. the unicorns don't really fit into any kind of standard story pattern, I think, kind of adds to that. Sarah, we're almost out of time, which is a shame. In your book, you actually took a moment to to deal with kind of unicorn biology and, and at least sort of to talk about like horns are, there's supposed to be two horns if they're going to be any horns. And if there's a single horn, you, you at least found one biologist who said that means something kind of quote unquote went wrong, right? It's not supposed to happen. Right. Yeah. Like basically you should think of horns in the same way you think of uh, eyes or hands or feet, like the cells that become horns are set up genetically so that they are supposed to be one on either side of your body. And like, it's just sort of like the two different types of uh, organs we have, like there's either like central organs or paired organs and horns um, and the tissue they grow from are paired and so like it is possible that like in nature um, something would go wrong with that and like the tissue would just like end up in the center of the head but that would be like a genetic oddity essentially. Yes, there's something called a hedgehog gene uh, that has something to do with that in a way that we probably don't have time to elucidate. <laughs> and in fact, we don't have time to elucidate it because we're basically done. I want to thank Sarah Laskow. Uh, her book is uh, The Very Short, Entirely True History of Unicorns. Adam Gidwitz uh, is the author of the Unicorn Rescue Society series, among other books, and the host of the podcast Grim, Grimmer, and Grimmest. Martha Bayless is director of folklore and public culture and a professor of English at the University of Oregon. Uh, thanks very much once again to Lily Tyson, celebrity producer who brought... Uh, this idea to us, as Adam said, we've done a dragon show. There's just like, that's what Lily said, too. She said, you, you have to do a unicorn show, and we're happy we did it. Uh, thanks again to to Cat Pastor. and uh, Oh, thanks to Katie Talorsi and her two kids. They were great. And to all of you who wrote in and helped out and stuff like that. And we're going to say goodbye now, but we're going to do another show tomorrow. No applied close the door because the rain is pouring. And we just can't wait for no unicorn. The ark started moving, it drifted with the tides. Them unicorns looked up from the rocks and they cried. And the waters came down and sort of floated them away. And that's why you never seen a unicorn to this very day. You'll see green alligators and long neck geese, some humpty back camels and some chimpanzees.
some cats and rats and elephants, but sure as you're born, you're never going to see no you.